We are continuing today our sermon series through the book of Psalms, and we've called this Worship by the Book. It's giving us an opportunity to follow the examples of poets, psalmists, writers uh, within our, our legacy, our heritage of faith who have set before us a model that we can follow. God has included this poetry in his word to not only tell us that these, these feelings, these approaches towards worshiping God, not only are they permissible, they are beautiful. In the Psalms, there's a combination of several different kinds of addresses to God. Some of them are very understandable. They're songs about praising God for who he is and agreeing with everything that he's done and hallelujah chorus sorts of things, but there are also very difficult ones. There are personal prayers in the book of Psalms that asks God to have vengeance on his enemies. There are Psalms that um, that express anger toward God, dissatisfaction in him. For the several psalms that are about worshiping God, there are also ones about being frustrated with God. Today, we are reading a psalm about thanksgiving. So if you'd like, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 138. That's going to be our primary passage this morning. I'm also going to uh, read the first few verses of Psalm 136. And if you want to follow along with that, you can, but you can also just listen to that. Psalm 136 is a call and response song. And it, it was uh, one that was commonly used at times of celebration. The worship leader would, would read uh, a, a description of God or even a command for God's people or refer to something that God has done, and the congregation would respond with the prescribed answer. You'll see in Psalm 136 that the answer is always the same. It's, for his steadfast love endures forever. When a worship leader would go through Psalm 136, it would refresh the attentions and the minds of the congregation and who God is because of what he's done. So I'm just going to read the first few verses of that. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him, by understanding, made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. I could go on and on. The psalm continues that way. Now, the, the reason I read Psalm 136 before we go into 138 is because Psalm 136 is the congregation program, if you will. Psalm 138, which is going to be our primary passage this morning, is kind of internally what is to happen inside of the heart of the believer as they engage in this sort of liturgy. 
Now, before I open with Psalm 138, I want to give two clarifications right off the bat. Firstly, I'm going to come right out and say that Psalm 138 is not about giving thanks to God because everything is going perfect. You know, there are some periods in our lives where it just seems like everything is going right, and in those times, we find it very easy to worship God. Now, in those times, we may not find it so easy to remember to worship God, but we may not have a hard time remembering why we worship God. Psalm 138 is not found in a time where everything is going right in the life of the psalmist. Psalm 138 is actually quite the opposite. The psalmist is talking about giving thanks to God regularly, constantly, this continuum of giving to God because God has given to him. But it's in the midst, in the context of things around him being broken and imperfect. And in that sense, and for that consideration, I am really grateful this morning that this is the psalm we're studying. Because although we may have experienced times in our lives where it seems like a bunch of things are going right, this is probably not one of those seasons for you. It's not for me. Now, I, I know amidst the church there are a lot of different feelings about the different things going on socially, politically, personally, in our country, in our community. But wherever, wherever you fall on those things, you're probably feeling pretty overwhelmed or discouraged by the brokenness around you. I am. Um, things, things have been pretty hard for me personally lately, I'll be honest. I, for those who don't know, I've been living in the parsonage for 24 days during the primary events of the CHOP protest, and I'm not going to go into that really right now, but I just want to say that in the last week and a half or so of me staying there, there was a lot of gunshots at nighttime. Loud blasts that would wake me up in the middle of the night and I would hear screaming and people running, and it was very scary. And now that I'm home again, the sound of my neighbor building his tool shed with his nail gun sets my heart pumping. I was almost crying last night during the fireworks displays on 4th of July because even though I kept consciously reminding myself, Matt, you're safe, people are just having a good time, these are not gunshots, people are fine, my body was subconsciously getting swept up into the fight, flight, freeze sort of responses. And so, in that sense, this, for me, is not a season where everything's going perfectly. And I, I would assume that you probably have some things like that going on for, for you, whether it's interpersonally with people you're, with whom you're interacting, whether it's your feelings for what's happening in our country at large or in the world at large, or whether you're feeling alienated or discouraged by the way some people, even people of the faith, are responding to these things. This is not one of those seasons where things are going perfectly. And so, it's great that we're in Psalm 138 this morning. That's clarification number one. 
It's not a psalm for the perfect season. Clarification number two is that this psalm is not about thankfulness. It's a psalm about thanksgiving. And what's the difference between the two of those things? I, I would say the primary difference between thankfulness and thanksgiving is that thankfulness is stagnant. It's a feeling. It's kind of a place of arrival. You're like, ha, ah, I feel thankful. I am thankful. I'm experiencing thankfulness. But what if you're not at that place this morning? Or any other season in your life? What if you're not feeling overwhelmed with gratitude? What if you are distracted, rather, by the difficult things going on around you? What if you're depressed? What if you're anxious? What if you are frustrated and feel like giving up? If you're in one of those places today, this psalm is not calling you to climb the uphill battle to get to the place of thankfulness. But rather, it's offering you the opportunity and offering me the opportunity to engage in this activity that is giving thanks. This is something that we can do even if we're not feeling super great inside. Thanksgiving is an activity. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read the psalm. Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands, the word of the Lord. Now, perhaps at first glance, this psalm seems like the fluffy musings of somebody who's in a season where everything's going hunky-dory. But as, as I said before, that's not the case. If you look closely, there's some sort of... Um, ominous allusions to defects in the things going on around the writer. Now, a, a, lot, of, a lot of people will attribute this psalm to David, so I will, I will use that for shorthand. In David's psalm of thanksgiving, there are slight hints that there's trouble in paradise. There are little hints of defects of things going on around him. Yes, in verse 1, David says, I give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. But look, he also says, before the gods. Who are they? We'll get to that a little bit later, but suffice it to say is that conditions are not perfect for David's pursuit of giving thanks to God. There are other things around. There are distractions. There are other things vying for credit and recognition and his attention. Things are not perfect. Distractions are present. 
Or look at verse 3 where David seems to be citing an occasion. He's remembering a time when he was at a place of great weakness and he cried out to the Lord and God responded and strengthened him. He's taking this as an opportunity to remember that bad things have happened to him before. Now, why would he be doing that at this time if everything was going perfect? Or look at verse 7, where David talks about uh, that he's walking a treacherous walk through this dangerous world, and his hope is that God will save him and pour out wrath on David's enemies. And then finally, in verse 8, David asks God to not forget about him. It's a desperate plea that communicates a life or death dependence on God. Trouble in paradise. Not everything's going perfect for David right now. Conditions weren't perfect, much like what we're experiencing today. It, take your pick from David's cocktail of woes in Psalm 138. Are you experiencing any of these things today? Um, are you feeling that there's unfit parties and positions of authority, whether politically or socially or, or or voices of activism that are, are saying things that are vying for your attention or vying for your allegiance? Um, have you been experiencing loss or defeat in the past or maybe recently? Are you tired of seeing the prideful getting ahead on the backs of the small? Are you feeling like your life, your very life and health is in danger at this time? Are you so aware and familiar right now with the fact that you are only surviving because God has not forgotten about you. And you're praying and hoping that God will not forget about you lest you be lost forever. Can you relate with any of those? those these are the things that David's referring to here. Maybe you can relate to all of them. If you relate to some of these or all of these, this psalm is applicable to you because that's what the writer was feeling at the time that he wrote it. All right, so this psalm is about giving thanks. So what does that mean anyway? Well, if this whole psalm is about giving thanks, then our understanding of the psalm is going to be completely dependent on our understanding of what that charge means. What does it mean to give thanks? Well, this psalm was originally written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word that has been translated for giving thanks is the word yada. Now, this is not just blank random trivia for you guys. This is actually kind of important. The word yada, it comes from the root word that just means hand. So this psalm actually doesn't describe for us what giving thanks is, but it kind of describes for us what it looks like. It's a graphic word. There's imagery involved to hand to God. Now, we have a kind of a modern phrase for that today. Have you ever said, I've got to hand it to you? Or heard someone say, I've got to hand it to you. You were right. I was wrong. I apologize. I've got, it, I've got to hand it to you. What you've done in this scenario was perfect. Or, or maybe we say, I've got to give you props. There's something, um, there's something that humans understand that giving thanks, recognize someone, someone, giving credit, 
is a release. It's a vulnerable thing. You're giving a part of yourself. You're losing a portion of yourself in order to recognize someone else. We say we give you props. We give you credit. I've got to hand it to you. And that's sufficiently a good understanding of what's being described here. Giving thanks. Handing to God. Now, verses 1 through 3 is David correctly orienting his thanks toward the right person, that person being God. I'm going to read it once more. It says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for the steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increase. Firstly, I want to show here that David makes a point to claim that he gives thanks to God with his whole heart. There's no division in this. There's no distraction in this. Everything about him knows and fully agrees that this is God deserving his thanks. He's willing to sign up for all that God is doing and agree with all that God has, ha has to offer wholeheartedly. But look at this. He says he's doing this before the gods. What does that mean? The word for gods is the Hebrew word Elohim, and it could mean a few different things, a wide spectrum, but I, I think it's important to understand that it, it effectively means authorities. I thank you, God, wholeheartedly before the authorities. Now, what are these authorities? Well, David lived at a time where pagan worship involved idols, physically positioned representations of other gods. And people would attribute to these gods credit for things going on in their lives. There was a god of prosperity, a god of health, a god of wealth, a god of sexuality. And so when, when people were experiencing, you know, I, I guess a prosperity in those particular categories, they would look to a particular idol and say, hey, credit to this idol. They have done this for me. So maybe the physical idols. Let's elevate that a little bit further. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that people who worship other gods are worshiping demons. There's, the Bible talks about there being this actual spiritual power that bolsters the veracity of these other forms of worship. And so maybe here David is saying, even, even in the antagonistic, powerful presence of these demons, I give thanks to God, and I'm not distracted by their power. Present though it may be, treacherous though it may be, I'm not distracted by these things. Lastly, being that Elohim really just means the authorities, this could be people. Sometimes Bible translators translate Elohim to mean judges, people in positions of power. So these could just be people in prominent political positions, prominent social positions who are directing the culture accordingly, vying for the credit and recognition and allegiance of people. 
But David is not deterred. David is not distracted. I think in that sense, we could learn a lot from David and how he's pursuing thanksgiving. Because although we don't really live in a culture where there's physical idols dedicated to the worship of pagan deities, we are constantly bombarded by other sources of authority. Even the demonic influences that were at work and in power in David's time, they're, they're alive and well here today too. But maybe the most visible representation of this is how blatantly people, human organizations, are vying for your attention, saying wholeheartedly agree with us, back us, or where, where a person, a, a figure, an activist will say, hey, tell everybody the things that I'm saying. Share my posts. Wear my merchandise. These things are vying for our attention constantly. But I think, I think you would agree with me when I say that I strive to find, if any, human voices with whom I can agree wholeheartedly. All of them want my wholehearted agreement. All of them want my wholehearted allegiance. And all of them require the same from you guys. Requiring us to proselytize on their behalf. Tell people to back this issue. Or tell people to vote this way. Or participate in this thing. But I strive to find any with whom I can fully agree. I think we could benefit from following David's example here. I get this picture in my mind of David being in a city square, around him these idols to other gods, and yet he's on his knees, bowing, oriented toward the temple of the true God. Not even paying any particular mind to these things around him vying for his attention. Now, why is it that David is so sure that the God to whom he gives thanks is the one deserving of his thanksgiving? Well, it says so in verse 2. He gives thanks to God's name. It's personal. He knows the God whom he's addressing. And it's because of this, God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. And if we keep moving on to verse 3, you'll see that it's what David has experienced. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. David is not just worshiping this construct of God that has been given to him by heritage because it's what he's been taught is the right faith, what he's been taught is the right religion. Rather, he gives his allegiance, his thanksgiving, his gratitude. He extends that to this God because this is the God who has helped him in times of trouble. Now, there was a time in David's life where he felt weak and defeated against the ropes. And he cried out to this God, and this is the God that answered. How did God answer? By word. Maybe David got a sense in his prayer time, or maybe 
the answers and the description of who God is in Scripture were the things that answered his questions. Like, do, do we have that today? Where we say, why God? Why is this happening? What do I do now? How could they do that? How could they behave that way? How could I do that? And we find peace in answers in God's word. Answers that make sense. And answers that give us comfort. David does not just give thanks to God because he's been told he's the right one, but because he's experienced the salvation from that God. Now, I want to take a quick side note and recognize here that David doesn't take a chance to explain to us what he was going through at that time. It was probably something tragic. It was notable to his memory. On that day, I called to you, and you answered, and you strengthened my soul. We have no idea what was happening to him at that time. It seems to me that he's so distracted by thanking God that he fails to acknowledge the rough thing that was happening to him in his life, substantial and notable that it may be. I would love to have that posture today. Guys, I'm a pastor, but I'm not perfect. And I'll be honest and say, I'm not at this place of David right now where I'm distracted by God's goodness away from all the rough things going on in the world. The, quite the opposite is, is my present circumstance, and I'm repenting of it. I'm asking God to strengthen me. To be honest, though, I'm much more distracted by the horrible things going on around me and the hurt that people I love are experiencing to remember the goodness of God and remember the times he's shown me comfort the times that he's answered the rough questions that I have. I would much rather to be, be where David is in this passage, to be paying much less mind to the things going wrong and paying more attention to what God has done for me in the past. Let's move on. Verses 4, 5, and 6. Verses 4, 5, and 6 are somewhat strange. David starts talking about kings, and there's this sort of ominous thing he says at the end about how God knows the haughty from a distance. I think that the reason this is present here is because this is personal to David. David was not, not just a king, but he was the king. David was the king. He was the second king of Israel, but the first one that Israel had did some great things and then also did some horrible things. And, and Israel had King Saul, who was their first king, who sometimes was even speaking the words of God. He was a king of whom the nation could have been proud, but then he would kind of lose it and do something way twisted and, and wrong-headed. He was not someone that they could follow wholeheartedly. He was an imperfect person in power. Now, David was also imperfect. He had many flaws. But there was something about his posture that gained the reputation, the reverence, and the respect of the nation of Israel, so much so that the coming generations would refer to David as the king. So in the genealogy of Jesus, 
it says so-and-so begot so-and-so or son of son of son of but when it gets to david it says and jesse begot david the king takes a beat there to recognize the majesty and and the and the might of who david was now maybe david includes his four five and six in the psalm because he's anticipating the reaction of his readers his readers are reading the words of the king david and all he can talk about is how grateful he is to god and how he's giving thanks to the god do the credit so so maybe the implication here is not just king david but all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks O god not just king david but all of the kings i think david here is leveling the playing field because you know what whether peasant or king we are all equalized in our humanity we are all limited because we're all people which means we're imperfect which means that we're fickle which means that we're fragile all of us die all of us feel insecure all of us are limited by our own humanity even a king who has access to all of the intelligences and discoveries of the human race his the greatest knowledge he has only exists within what humans have discovered now but here what david says is that all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks O lord for they have heard the words of your mouth even the greatest of humanity should give thanks for knowing the words of god the kings who have access to all the great secrets of humanity can never break out of the human ceiling but god has brought his word and his truth down to us through revelation and given us this thing to this earth that is outside of the earth entirely heavenly in origin but he's given it to us even the kings would recognize the grace of that now i think in the sense of what a king was during david's time we're the everyday person in our community is a lot like royalty in that sense after all we have access to any knowledge that humans have ever discovered through our smartphones and through our libraries and through study resources and articles and peer-reviewed op pieces we can know really anything it's at our fingertips like royalty well educated resources made available even freely in a lot of cases and like kings and queens like royalty we can demand whatever kind of food that we want at any point of the day and boom it arrives we have uber eats and netflix and hbo max and disney plus and the streaming service wars that's giving us more and more and more things that we could ever want whenever we want them at a reasonable price and see the thing is is we can so quickly become satisfied in those things that we can control and the things that we have access to but if we would just push a little bit further and realize that this word is something that 
the greatest feats of humanity could never discover for us. The words of God are revelation given graciously, not something that we've uncovered by the progress of humanity. Like, did you wake up this morning being so grateful that God's secrets and mysteries have been revealed to you through his word in a language that you understand, preserved throughout the millennia at your fingertips in multiple translations with cross-references and footnotes? Did you wake up overwhelmed with thankfulness for that this morning? Did I? No, and I've been studying this. But if we would, if we would pay attention to those things, the fact that a truth and a love greater than humanity has been revealed to us freely, we might be less overwhelmed by the things around us. And David says, the Lord is high, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. We would think that God, who is cosmically majestic, cosmically royal, would at best only fraternize with the top tier of humanity, the highest of social class. But it's actually quite the opposite. God gets low. He comes and he speaks to the humble. And he makes himself available to those who are interested because they are not self-sufficient. They're not content with the things that they have access to. No matter whether you're a pauper or a king, you could be at that place. You can realize that what God has given to you, has made available to you, is great beyond your, your wildest dreams. And whether you're poor or rich, great or small, you can be one of the humble to whom God is close. But when we become self-satisfied, then rather we start hovering a little bit higher than where God is interested in speaking to us. Now notice here, God still knows the prideful. He still knows the haughty, but he knows, knows them from a distance because they're hovering higher than where they should be. Let's move on, verses 7 and 8, the final verses of the psalm. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose to me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, and yours forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. In verses 7 and 8, David becomes a little bit more forthcoming with the problems in his life. He says here that he's, he's walking through times of troubles. He, he cites that he has enemies. And he pleads that God wouldn't forsake him, that God wouldn't forget about him. But the imagery he uses is really, really interesting. Look what he says. He says... You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. The word there for hand is yad. The word for thanksgiving is yada. It comes from hand. I wonder if David is doing some wordplay here. David is experiencing that God is saying, no further. Enemies of my child David, no further. David says, your hand does this. My hand 
gives you this small example of gratitude. Yes, I'm giving you thanks, Lord, but it pales into comparison of what you've done for me and what you do for me. He even recognizes that he himself is the work of God's hand. All of this is about focus. You might say perspective. It's not fake it until you make it. It's not count your blessings until you feel a little bit better about your situation. It's look at what God has done and continues to do. The mighty hand and an outstretched arm God has delivered us. I want you to look at verse 8. Because it seems like there's a connection between verse 8 and verse 2. David uses a lot of the same wording in verse 8 as he does with verse 2. In verse, verse 2, he says, You have, uh, excuse me, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, which he experienced when God answered his call. And then verse 8, it says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. What David has experienced in the past, he expects in the future. Who God has proven to be in his past trials, David is expecting that that's who God will be in this one. His present hope is based on past testimonies. Now, how, how can David expect that? Well, in James 1, verses 16 and 17, James says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I think it's because of this that David isn't tempted to be distracted by these other peripheral things vying for his credit, vying for his recognition. He knows that every good thing he's ever experienced is at best an instrument in the hand of the God that saves him. And just as in James it says that the Father of Lights has no variation or no shadow because of change, David knows that God proved that he had steadfast love and faithfulness then, and his steadfast love endures forever, even in this. Now, sometimes we go through seasons in our lives where the, today's trial is worse than the one we see, we've experienced in the past. I know 2020 has been a rough year. Maybe it's been the roughest year you've ever experienced. But the God who showed you steadfast love and faithfulness in the past still holds today in his powerful, mighty hands. Now, it's, it's interesting that David doesn't say that he knows that God will grant his requests. David doesn't say, God, I know that you will accomplish the things that I'm asking you to do. Rather, he says, the Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. 
Our hope is not that our God loves us so much that he gives us everything that we want. And if we would just hold, grin and bear it for this current season of trials, then eventually we're going to get the things that we're asking for. Hold tight because it's coming. I've been a pastor long enough, I've been in ministry long enough that I've seen people whose confidence in the Lord has been destroyed by that sort of expectation. That is not what David is having here. He's saying, I know that God, that you will do with me whatever it is you want to do. David doesn't know what's coming for him, but he knows who the deliverer is. And he trusts in the character of that deliverer because that deliverer's steadfast love endures even in this. If you're a Christian today, regardless of whether or not you feel thankful, whether or not you feel good, engage in this exchange that David exemplifies here. You can chart through God's faithfulness and show the places where God has exhibited to you steadfast love. Maybe it's just simply in the fact that he's given you his word, wherein are the, are the means for salvation in Jesus Christ. Go through those, chart them, and recognize that that's the same God even here, even now. And as you present before God, as I present before God, and I hand to him my tiny display of gratitude, the credit I give him, that I hand to him, the props that I give him, as small as it might be, Remember that this is the God who stretched out his hand upon a jagged cross. And his hand were pierced for our salvation. That is the God who holds your life today. In 2020 is the same God who died on the cross for you and for me. What love and provision and victory is shown at the cross. What self-sacrifice is shown at the cross. That steadfast love endures forever, even today, even in this. And though we may not feel thankful, we can give thanks for what he has done. And we'll come to realize that we're not faking it till we're making it. We're not counting our blessings until we feel a little bit better about our current, current situations. We'll just come to realize that our perspective shifts. Like David, we may not forget the trials we've experienced, but we become a lot more attentive to the goodness of God in the midst of those trials. I think that's especially important for us when we are down to do this very thing because it awakens in us a great joy. Not a distraction away from our trials, but a joy in the midst of them because we've been given so much. I think of how Jesus said in Luke 7, that uh, the woman before him loves him much because she's been forgiven much. 
But he who's forgiven little loves little. When we are in the midst of the mire, we're in the depth of the pit, and we see from where God has saved us, it's those times where we're overwhelmed with love. And, and, and it definitely, it certainly changes. How, how could we feel depressed? How could we feel hopeless? When we know that all that awaits us is the same God who stretched out his hand for our salvation. I lastly just want to, to recognize that the Psalms are in God's word because these behaviors are permissible and beautiful. If you're feeling depressed today, if you're feeling exhausted, if you want to give up, just, just be that way before God. But answer those feelings with the thanksgiving that is based in truth and the things that God has done for you, ultimately exemplified in Jesus' death on the cross. For in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. In every one of our trials, there is a corresponding blessing and answer and response and remedy at the cross of Jesus Christ. Every single one. So let's return to Jesus this morning, discouraged though we may be, and find there that we have reason to give thanks to God. A small hand to God, a mighty hand outstretched to us. Let's pray. Lord, People in your church are being mean to each other. Telling each other that they're not real followers of Jesus Christ because they don't see eye to eye with each other. People in, in the world that you created are hurting each other, killing each other. We are afraid. We are hopeless. We are depressed at times. But... You created this world by your word. You spoke all good things into existence to communicate your love to us by your good word. And then your word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, who came, who condescended to the lowly, though cosmically royal he was. And he died for the salvation and the deliverance of people like me who don't deserve it. I give you thanks in the midst of all of my frustrations because of what you have done. Because when you spoke to me at the time of my conversion, you showed me love and attention and a means for salvation, and that steadfast love endures forever, even in this, even today. I pray that my brothers and sisters know so fully well that same truth for themselves today. And if there are any 
non-Christians in this hearing, that they would think to a moment of their lives where they know that a personal God looked out for them, that they would recognize that that God wants to no longer know them from afar, but to know them closely. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and though we may not feel thankful at all times, we give you thanks. Hallelujah and amen.